Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 119. I was thinking, Amanda, that uh, as I grew up, I probably was 10 or 11. I have two younger brothers. And uh, so I don't know how old my younger brothers were, but I do remember getting up in the morning. We lived in an old farmhouse and um, I lived upstairs. We had one restroom downstairs and to pass the kitchen. So if I got up in the morning and went uh, downstairs, uh, I would pass the kitchen. And I remember my mom sitting at the kitchen table facing away from that doorway. She was facing the opposite direction with her red Bible. And I don't know how early I got up, but as time went along, that wasn't the only time I saw her there. And there's something that just sticks in my mind about that. And it's, I was home with my folks, uh, I say home, I haven't made that place home for many years, but um, my mom has a a little breakfast nook as you walk into their house and right there, which they don't really ever eat breakfast there. She does sometimes, but that's where her Bible is. And that's where she studies now. And she's in her 70s. And there's really... It's, it's not just a one moment, it's over time seeing that devotion that is such a testimony to me as a child, and I'm just about a 50-year-old child, so uh, we, have a, we have a really an opportunity to pass on to the next generation over time, and may the Lord help us all to do that, and certainly support with prayer when there's challenges. And uh, we certainly will support you and are supporting you through prayer, I hope, in other ways, too. Psalm 119, we began looking at a section that deals with keeping God's words. It's starting verse 57 and down through verse 64. The promise of the psalmist is... Found in verse 57, after he says, the Lord is my portion, my inheritance, you might say. He belongs to me, of course, I belong to him, but his promise, because the Lord is his portion, is to keep God's words. But in making that promise, he then follows that with a prayer for grace. Verse 58, I sought your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word. I don't know if you took me up on, if you were here last week, the opportunity to look up that phrase, be gracious to me, but it's throughout the Psalms. And it's for many different reasons that the psalmist asks for grace. 
be gracious to me. That's showing favor. That enables. And the psalmist asks for that in Psalm 4, Psalm 9, Psalm 25, Psalm 51, Psalm 57, Psalm 86, and at other times, be gracious to me, be gracious to me. And God, of course, is gracious. He loves to be gracious. The text in Isaiah says he longs to be gracious to you, especially when you want to keep his word, when you want to do what he has said. He longs to be gracious, to give us that grace that enables us to obey. And as we see verse 59, our natural disposition is not towards his testimonies. It's away from doing his testimonies. It's another reason that we need to pray and ask him for grace. We need his help. We need his enablement. But there is a self-reflection, verse 59, and then a purposeful turning to God's testimonies. You could say that's repentance, certainly something that needs to happen all the time as God shows us that our ways are not consistent with his word. And he teaches us the right way, and we recognize I'm not on the right path. It's like not looking at the map for a while and getting off track and then realizing I'm not in the right place. That GPS, if you ever use the GPS, right, it's always correcting. You make a wrong turn, it's correcting. That's actually a good thing to be correcting, correcting, correct. I don't like to hear that if it's talking to me, but I need to be correcting and corrected. And of course, teachable, correctable. And when I'm corrected, how do I respond? Do I respond immediately or is there a delay? Verse 60, he says, I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. God is God. He is worthy to be obeyed all the time and immediately. And if he has spoken and his word is known to me and I'm not obeying, when is the right time to obey? It's not later. It's now. There should be no delay. Um, the only thing that's going to happen if I delay is I will increase my sin. And I appreciated the quote from Spurgeon. I read this last week. Delay in repentance is increase in sin. To be slow to keep the commands of God is to break them. Much evil is found in a lagging pace when God's commands are to be followed. So I hope as we are reminded to, of the importance of obeying God's word, that we'll also see that delay would be sinful. But the opposition doesn't just come from without, or excuse me, from within. It comes from without. Verse 61 in order to keep God's word, David also had to deal with influences from without that could in some way tempt him to either make excuses or somehow keep him from obeying. He says in verse 61, and this is where we're picking up from where we were last week, the cords of the wicked have encircled me. 
but I have not forgotten your law. Another translation, I think, the, I believe the King James had the bands of the wicked robbed me. That's a little bit different understanding. I believe the, the translation here is accurate. The New American Standard is accurate. The cords of the wicked have encircled me as if he is in a constricted place because of the wickedness of the wicked. And I had to ask in David's life and his circumstance, although he doesn't specify it here, he's not Samson. He was never tied up like Samson was. But when was he in a place where he was in some way constricted or the enemy was putting him in a between a rock and a hard place? Is this his experience with Achish and Gath? When he's with the enemy and they recognize him, remember he slobbered on his beard and scratched on the gate and tried to get out. And of course, the Lord enabled him to get out. But that was a circumstance in which he was surrounded by wicked people and could have acted or lived in such a way as to convince them that he was not an Israelite could have acted in sin, sinful ways. Is this possibly his experience with Saul? And there were multiple times where Saul acting sinfully brought David the temptation to sin back, right? When you get sinned against, it's easy to sin back. David was sinned against many times with Saul. Saul threw a spear at him. Saul gave him his daughter with an intent to put a target on David's back so that David would be killed. David was tasked with going to kill a hundred Philistines as a target. Basically, Saul sending him into harm's way. Well, is this David's experience with the Ziphites? The Ziphites were that group of people where David was running from Saul. David came out into their territory and the Ziphites told Saul, is not David hiding among us? In other words, he's around. And then Saul came, and that's the passage where it says that Saul and his men were coming around. David is on the backside of the mountain, and they're about to capture him. And then suddenly word comes to Saul that the Philistines were attacking, and David escaped. Another rock in a hard place. David escaped. And what did David do? David didn't do anything. David was faithful. He did not want to touch. He would not let his men touch the Lord's anointed. But it would have been difficult, wouldn't it, to continue to obey the Lord and not sin against the Lord or sin against your king when your king is trying to kill you. So David is using an image here that really could apply to a number of circumstances where he's in a difficult circumstance. And isn't it those times where the difficult circumstance brings out in us what we desire to do and what we want to do, sometimes in contrast with God's commands, oftentimes in contrast with God's commands. But even when David was put between the proverbial rock and a hard place, what does he say? I have not forgotten your law. I have not forgotten it. 
Another place, he says, Psalm 140, the proud have hidden a trap for me in cords. They've spread a net by the wayside. They've set snares for me. But David didn't use those circumstances as an excuse. Not that David was perfect. But he remembered God's word. And this is an example to us. It's instruction for us. We don't have to sin. You can't say the person made me do it or the devil made me do it. If God gives us strength, and he does, if he has put his spirit inside of us in this dispensation, and he has if we are believers, we don't have to sin. Christ has died for us, and we're united with Christ, and we have union with Christ, and we're no longer under sin as a master. We're no longer enslaved to sin. What did Paul say in Romans? Sin shall no longer be your master. You don't have to sin. If you choose to sin and you're a believer, you go back into sin, you're actually submitting yourself to your old master. That's who your master used to be, but now you serve a new master. Your new master is Christ. You now serve holiness. You no longer serve ungodliness. And David says here, I have not forgotten your law. I think the, one of the points that we could see in application is we ought not use someone else's wickedness to justify our own. You can still do right even when someone seemingly has you in chains. Jesus did not stoop to the level of the leaders who crucified him, even when they spoke against him in blasphemy, in mockery. He did not return in kind. And it's a wonderful thing to know that our Lord controlled himself and his tongue perfectly while he was suffering. When he was reviled, Peter says, 1 Peter 2.23, he did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. We're not to render anyone evil for evil, but isn't that our tendency? Someone says or does something to us and we want to immediately respond back with vengeance. No, that's not how you overcome evil. You overcome evil with good. You don't render evil for evil. God is the one who will bring vengeance when necessary upon those who seek to bring me harm or bring me harm. And praise the Lord that even our Lord, when he was dying on the cross, what was he doing? He was praying for those who were persecuting him, just like he taught his followers to do. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And I love Hebrews 12, 3, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not resisted the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Jesus, of course, as the son of God, is almighty. What could he have done? Even if he chose not to do it himself, he asked Peter, don't you know I could call upon my father and he'll send 
legions of angels, but he didn't do that. Instead, he remembered the word of God, he followed the Father's will for him, and he died upon the cross just as the Father had planned. So when you are influenced by the wicked, when you are sometimes persecuted or mistreated by the wicked, remember God's law, remember his word, remember his guidance when He tells you how to deal with those who oppose you. Love your enemies, Jesus taught. And may the Lord help us to obey his word, to remember his word. Verse 62 seemed to me, as I, other than the general subject of the psalm, seemed to me just kind of out of order, right? That's in my natural way of thinking. I don't see the connections, and so I'm striving just kind of trying to figure out what's the connection. I'm talking about keeping God's words, keeping God's words when under pressure, guarding, not forgetting God's words. And suddenly, verse 62, it's at midnight, I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. Uh, When was the last time you were up on purpose at midnight? I know it's January 15th. Was it about 15 days ago? I went to bed. (laughs) I had to preach the next day. I told my kids, I'm going to go to sleep so I can be awake while you're sleeping. (laughs) Hopefully not while I'm preaching. (laughs) Midnight is actually the middle of the night. Rising is a purposeful rising. So this isn't staying up till midnight. This is, it seems, being asleep, but then rising for the purpose of doing this. And what is he rising to do? To give praise to the Lord. To give thanks to the Lord. Why? Well, if you look through the scriptures, you can see the Lord has done things in the middle of the night that are worthy of praise. It was in the middle of the night, the Lord went through the land and struck the Egyptians and protected his people by the blood over the door. It was at midnight when Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of prayer to God. It seems that they were staying up that night says all the prisoners were listening to them. It was at midnight when Paul was preaching and Eutychus fell, right? Woke him up, actually put him to sleep and Paul woke him up. Uh, So I, you know, trying to attach some kind of connection between those events in scripture, I I don't know that we can necessarily do that. It's difficult to do that in this Psalm, unless you have a specific reference that ties another passage to this, you just have to say, well, what's going on in the life of this person who's rising to get up in the middle of the night to give thanks to God, purposely rising? And what's he giving praise to God for? His righteous ordinances. And the the other thing I would say is it doesn't seem that he's having trouble sleeping. We can see other psalms where the psalmist is talking about being troubled, not able to sleep. 
this seems to be a purposeful rising, middle of the night, to give thanks to God because of something good about God's word, his ordinances. His ordinances are his judgments or his decisions. Going back to our original list of all those words, God's law, his testimonies, his precepts, his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his word, his promise. His ordinances are his judgments or decisions. Someone said the decisions of the all-wise judge about common human situations. Scripture then, someone said, as the standard given for fair dealing between man and man is a predominant sense of this term. So it's God's judgments, his decisions, his word, the righteousness of them, the rightness of those things, the goodness of those words. That's why he's getting up in the middle of the night to praise God for his word. Nobody seems to be watching. He's not doing this with other people. This is not at the temple. This is something that is in the life of this person alone, where his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he decides to rise up when sleep would be the norm in order to give praise to God. He's breaking sleep to bring praise to God. Now, that sounds like sincerity to me. When somebody is doing that for that purpose, nobody else is watching. It's also secret. It's not with anybody else. And what this suggests is that he really does delight in God's word. He remembers God's word. It's a joy to him. And I would just ask, is it a joy to you? You might not choose to do exactly what the psalmist says here. But are there times when you secretly and sincerely rejoice in the righteousness of God's word? Nobody else is watching. You're not doing it to show other people. You're just doing it because God's word really is good. And you really do love it. You want to praise him for it. I like what Calvin said in his commentary on the Psalms. He says, the prophet does not simply declare that he magnifies God's righteous judgments. He affirms that he rose at midnight to do so, by which he expresses the earnestness of his desire. For the studies and cares which break our sleep necessarily imply great earnestness of soul. I'm taking that for sincerity, earnestness. You know, the idea that this is really, this is something that he truly does value. And then he says he also at the same time intimates that in bearing his testimony in behalf of the divine law, he was far from being influenced by show or showing other people. Since in his secret retirement, when no human eye was upon him, he pronounced the highest praises on God's righteous judgments. That really, that statement just guided my thinking, and it it, it stands to reason. Why, why else would he be getting up at midnight? Unless God commanded. God didn't command it. Just something that he valued. It's a part of his life.
are you keeping God's word? Are you guarding God's word? And as you guard God's word in your life, you're praying for grace and help. And then as you obey God's word and you see the fruit of that obedience, you see the blessing that comes when you actually obey. And then following that, God has given grace to obey. You've seen the blessing. Then there's reason to give him thanks that he has directed you in the right path. You just want to praise him and give him thanks. Thank you, Lord, for guiding me in the path of life, doing what is right. I'm guessing you may have at some time gotten up to go see the sunrise. Anybody gone up to see the sunrise? Why'd you do that? I mean, it's a nice thing to see the sunrise. It's quiet, depending on where you are. It can be a beautiful thing, beautiful scenery. And I confess that when I was coerced to do it, I enjoyed it, right? But would I necessarily do that all by myself? I'm just going to get up tomorrow and see the sunrise. Well, some people have that in their hearts to do. There's something better than seeing the sunrise. As beautiful and scenic as it may be, hearing the waves come in on the shore, birds flying. I mean, you imagine a scene like that and the beauty of that. There's something better than that. It's God's word. It's his righteous ordinances. It's reason to get up and give him praise and honor and glory in our lives. That's how good his word is. May the Lord help us to see it for what it is, to esteem God's word and the joy that comes when we truly do obey, when we remember it. Now look at verse 63. I am a companion of those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. So in keeping with the theme, we've got, I promise to keep your words. Verse 57, multiple verses here reminding us to keep, not forget, to guard God's words. And here is a help along the way. It's not me keeping God's words, but it's me keeping company with those who keep God's words. And it's because I keep company with those who keep God's words that helps me to keep God's word. I remember one night I was a companion of a bunch of boys my age, and we just did a whole bunch of things that were wicked. Just things we were saying, things that we were doing. And I remember walking away from that night, remembering that night, remember to this day, thinking that was so foolish. I don't think, even though I was a sinful boy, I don't believe I would have done everything that I did had I not been with them. But they wanted to do some things, and I was with them, and I didn't have my heart right, and so I was doing things with them. The one who walks with wise men, the proverb says, will be wise. A companion of fools will be destroyed. I'm thankful the Lord in his providence didn't let me regularly hang around with those boys. But if you want to fear the Lord, you need to 
be with people who fear the Lord. I hope you would find that certainly, first of all, in the church with God's people. But God, of course, brings Christians along our path, sometimes as friends that we spend time with who encourage us, don't they? They, they help us to do what is right. They love God. They fear God. They have, but Charles Bridge def, uh, Bridges defined the fear of the Lord as. I'm quoting here from his commentary in Proverbs. That affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. His wrath is so bitter and his love so sweet that hence springs an earnest desire to please him. And because of the danger coming short from his own weakness and temptations, a holy watchfulness and fear that he might not sin against him. Bridges says this enters into every exercise of the mind, every object of life. So it's a reverence for God bending humbly and carefully to the law or the commands of God. There's an earnest desire to please God. There's a holy watchfulness and fear. Do you know anybody like that? Now we're, if there's anything of that in us, it is God's grace in us. If God is producing that in us, it's his grace working, but that's the kind of spirit desire I ought to have for myself and then for my companions. Not those who hate God, not those who don't want to obey God, not those who don't care about pleasing God. I want those who actually do desire to please God and love God and obey God. Albert Martin, in a book about the fear of the Lord, suggested three ingredients to the fear of God. Someone who has the fear of God has correct concepts, or you could say understanding of the character of God. Someone who fears God has a pervasive sense of the presence of God. God's everywhere. That's true. Someone who fears God knows that he's here whenever and wherever. And then thirdly, a constraining awareness of his or her obligations to God. He says to live in the fear of God is not just to know who he is and that he's here. It's also to recognize that in any circumstance in which I find myself, the most important issue is my present obligations to this great God who is here. And I would just ask you, do you know anybody like that? Do you know someone who fears the Lord? I hope that you fear the Lord and that those truths, as you think about your own life, that you'll grow in your understanding of who God is, that you'll certainly be aware that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding, watching over the evil and the good, and that you'll also be aware of your obligation to God, to walk before him, to follow him in obedience. But what is the preachers say in Ecclesiastes, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. It's interesting, Christian, as he is going through the valley of the shadow of death, hears someone speaking and it encourages him because he thinks he is alone. But he's not alone. There are other people in the valley too. 
And then it was his desire to catch up with that person. He didn't, but that was his desire to be encouraged by the presence of another who feared the Lord, who was going through the same circumstance. And you look at Christian in that work, and he does have friends. He has evangelists. He has faithful. He has hopeful. And faithful, if you follow faithful's story, he is faithful unto death. What a friend who feared the Lord to the point where he was willing to give his life for the Lord, for the testimony of the Lord. Friends can help us. They can also point us in the wrong direction if their heart is not right, if they don't fear the Lord. David's testimony, Psalm 101, my eyes shall be on the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood should not maintain his position before me. David, of course, was a king. He was seeking to rule. He wanted to rule righteously, and he could not have those in his court, those who were his trusted counselors who were going to lead him in the wrong direction, who didn't fear the Lord. Can I ask you whose company you enjoy? and whose company you pursue? Is it those who fear the Lord? Is it those who love the Lord? I will also ask you in connection with that, whose music do you enjoy? What music are you influencing your heart? Is it those who fear the Lord or those who love the world? That's a strong influence in the wrong direction. So choose your friends wisely. Now, we, we, we know that in the New Testament, we're to make disciples of all the nations. We know that Jesus was a friend of sinners. We know that his purpose was to win those who were lost. So we're not saying complete exclusion from those who are lost and those who are wicked, but in terms of who I'm going to share values with and be influenced by to walk in the same direction, it's not those people. It's those people that I'm trying to win to Christ. It's those people that I want to show the way of righteousness to. And yes, spending time with them is necessary in order to win them. So please don't misunderstand me. We can't have an isolation from those who are sinners. But we can't learn their ways and follow after what they're following after. George Swinnock Puritan said, a Christian before his conversion is brought up under the prince of darkness and walks in company with his cursed crew according to the course of the world. But when the spirit changes his disposition, he quickly changes his companions and delights only in the saints that are on the earth. Those are the ones that help me on to God, that point me in the right direction. When it comes to the others, I found myself recently in the company of several other men I've known, some have had more recent contact with. But several of them just do not know God, don't want to follow God. 
And I was, I still am seeking to win those men. There was one of them with whom I could pray. And I believe truly did fear God. And I think would be good company. If you're going to keep God's word, you need help. You need God's grace. Verse 58. And you need companions who will help you. I hope you find those relationships within the church and that there is a blessing for you when you come to this place, that you find companions, find others who are heading in the same direction, who will help you to do what is right. I hope those relationships, and I would just encourage you to deepen those relationships. Deepen your relationships with God's people. Grow in fellowship. Encourage one another. Help one another. This is a pilgrimage. We need to help one another. We need one another. And as you seek to help, God will also give you help. And you'll help others keep God's precepts, his words, and you too will be helped. Let's just briefly look at the last verse here. The earth is full of your loving kindness, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. The earth is full of your loving kindness, David said. He had said, the Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. He asked for prayer, or excuse me, he asked God for grace in prayer that God would help him to keep God's testimonies. He mentions the wicked, verse 61. If it's outside of Israel that he met the wicked or inside of Israel, wherever David found himself in caves and along the coast and exile from Israel in the south when he was battling the Amalekites and making raids upon Israel's enemies in the south. But wherever David was, David saw the loving kindness of the Lord. The steadfast love of the Lord. That faithful, loyal love of God. That's what chesed is. The earth is full of it. Not just that he could find little bits of it here and there. But the earth is full of it. Is it Is it the book of nature that David is talking about? Well, I think you could see in nature, in natural revelation, the loving kindness of the Lord. But I also believe in David's experience, he saw time and time again where God showed him his steadfast love wherever he was, whatever he was doing. David said in Psalm 103, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. Psalm 57, for your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Well, that's up. And that's up beyond what I can see or measure. But David didn't just look up when he thought about the loving kindness. He looked all around him everywhere. God's steadfast love. He could see it in his life. One writer said, it's mercy that takes us out of the womb feeds us in the days of our pilgrimage, furnishes us with spiritual provisions, closes our eyes in peace, and translates us to a secure resting place. It's the first petitioner's suit, the first believer's article, 
the contemplation of Enoch, of course, as he walked with God, the confidence of Abraham, the burden of the prophetic songs, the glory of all the apostles. Remember, Paul spoke about that love that transcends our knowledge. The plea of the penitent, the ecstasies of the reconciled, the believers, Hosanna, the angels, hallelujah. Ordinances, oracles, altars, pulpits, the gates of the grave and the gates of heaven do all depend upon mercy. It's the lodestar of the wandering, the ransom of the captive, the antidote of the tempted, the prophet of the living, the effectual comfort of the dying. There would not be one regenerate saint upon earth, nor one glorified saint in heaven, if it were not for mercy, the steadfast love of the Lord. It does surround us. And for such a God who fills the earth with his loving kindness, whose statutes are righteous and good, why would I not pray, teach me your statutes? That's how he ends this section. He said, I promise to keep your words. He asks for grace. He's looking for companions to help him. But the Lord is his teacher. Teach me. Teach me your statutes. As I was thinking about this prayer, just teach me your statutes, I thought, what a great prayer for the morning when you open God's word. What a prayer for the Lord's Day, when we all open God's word together. What a great prayer for life. Not only that when I'm looking at God's word that he would teach me, but that in life he would teach me his statutes. As I keep them, as I don't forget them, I remember them as he brings them to mind. Lord, teach me. Don't only teach me the knowledge, but teach me to do. And again, this is a prayer our Lord delights to answer. Praise the Lord. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, teach us your statutes. As we ponder tonight just these words from the psalmist, we're reminded of how good your word is, how gracious you are to give it, how faithful and loving you are to guide us in the right path, to help us along the way. Lord, I pray that you'd help us in our relationships with one another to encourage one another to keep your commandments. We enjoy time laughing together. We enjoy sharing life together, but we pray that the most precious thing to us as we talk with one another is speak the truth in love and to help one another follow your precepts, to walk according to your word, that we might please you and bring you glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.